Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Stick to investing in what you know a lot about. If you don't know a lot about something, then you probably shouldn't be investing because it's a little bit like walking into a poker game where you haven't worked out who, this is a Buffett quote, you haven't worked out who the patsy is. If you haven't worked out who the patsy is, it's you. G'day and welcome to Shares for Beginners. Today, my guest is Roger Montgomery. Now, Roger's the Chief Investment Officer and founder of Montgomery Investment Management. He's had and continues to have a successful career as an analyst, strategist, fund manager and public company chairman. Roger appears regularly in the media and press, so um, he needs no introduction for a lot of listeners, and he's kindly agreed to appear on this podcast. G'day, Roger, and thanks for coming in to chat. Pleasure to be with you, Phil. Okay, so let's talk about quality. You talk about the quality of companies that you like to invest in. What does quality mean to you? Well, it can mean a variety of things, but you know, if you, we think of quality quite specifically. It's simply a company or a business that has the ability to generate very high rates of return on incremental capital. You can think of a bank account. It's got $10 million in it. Special bank account earns 20% interest every year, and you can take the money out or you can keep it in there. Well, in today's market, if you took the money out, the best you could probably get is 1.6% in a term deposit. So you'd rather keep it in there. So a quality, because it'll compound at 20% per annum. So a quality business is a business that can take very large amounts of its profit, so very large amounts of retained earnings, and reinvest it at very high rates of return. That's the most valuable asset that you could possibly own. And we try and find those in the listed space here and globally. Have you got an, have you got an example of a company like that? Um, uh, lots. CSLs. Yeah, yeah I was actually going to bring up CSL. Reese would be another one. The, pl- ARB, the, plumbing, the plumbing company. Yeah, ARB. Yeah. Um, there's, there's dozens and dozens of companies in Australia that have generated high rates of return on incremental capital for a long time because they often tend to be oligopolies in Australia or duopolies. For whatever reason, um, companies tend, when they mature, they take over other companies, you end up with two main players. You know, think airlines, think supermarkets, um, the banks are an oligopoly. You, know, that you just tend to get that situation. And where that's the case, companies can charge high prices for their products. And where they can do that, then they tend to be, become more valuable more quickly. Uh, and so in order to generate very high rates of return on incremental capital, a company needs to have a competitive advantage. The most valuable competitive advantage is simply the ability to charge a higher price without a detrimental impact on unit sales volume. So increasing price of your product without a detrimental impact on unit sales volume means that if I feel charge you more than I charged you last year for the same thing and you continue to buy from me, then I have the most valuable competitive advantage out there. So I think Tiffany's Diamonds, for example, or Tiffany's and Tiffany & Co., they charge more for diamonds than you would pay for the same diamond on this side of the street, but people continue to cross the road to buy their diamonds from Tiffany because of reputation, because of tradition or whatever it is. The movie. You know, the movie. Mm-hmm. The, you, know, you can't have Audrey Hepburn in a, 
you know, breakfast at Michael Hill. You know, it's going to be, it's always breakfast at Tiffany. So because of all of that, you know, provenance, they can charge more for the very same rock that you can buy somewhere else. So that's what we like, those sorts of businesses. And there's a lot of them in Australia. In the case of CSL, it's blood plasma, isn't it, that they... Yep, they they, mine it. Yeah, we think of them as a biological mining company. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's, you know, very steady demand or growing demand for the products that they produce. And they're doing a lot of R&D. And they also, obviously, um, vaccines, influenza vaccines as well. Uh, and so they they dominate the Southern Hemisphere uh, during our cold months and during the European and United States or Northern Hemisphere winter months. We're in summer, and so we're a solid supply for the rest of the world just because of the geographical location. So they've got a competitive advantage in terms of the number of blood uh, collection centres. They've got a competitive advantage in terms of the amount of money they spend on R&D and the success of that R&D, and they've got a competitive advantage geographically. So a, a company that's um, making money, they can do a few things with that money, can't they? Yep. They can give it away to shareholders, give it back to shareholders. Well, they hand it back to the owners. The way we think about the relationship between companies and shareholders, it's not they could give it away to shareholders. Okay. Shareholders yep. are the owners of the business. You own it. You vote for the directors. You, they represent you. Um, they're working for you as the shareholder in that business. So they can either you can either vote to return the money or ask the company to return the money to shareholders where they don't have an ability to generate high rates of return on equity um, or they could um, buy something or they can reinvest it in their existing businesses. Now, if they can't generate a high rate of return on their retained profits, they probably should pay it out uh, and give investors an opportunity to invest that money at a higher rate elsewhere. The worst business to own is the business that doesn't have a competitive advantage, um, generates low rates of return on equity, and is forced to reinvest just to stay in the same competitive position. That's the worst business to own. So out of necessity, it's got to keep the profits and keep generating low rates of return just to stay in business. So an example of that might be, you know, Virgin um, Virgin Australia, you know, a, a car manufacturing business. They generate very low rates of return. They're forced to reinvest very high proportions of their profit at those low rates. Well, so like uh, Virgin would have to be buying more aircraft. Is that the case? Yeah, and Qantas yeah. will be the same down the track, I suspect. You yeah. know, they're generating good returns at the moment and high cash flows, but their fleet is ageing. So they're doing that by not replacing the fleet perhaps as quickly as they should or could. So in terms of what you were talking about before, where customers are going to pay something for a product that a company is producing. It's different in the case of iron ore? Well, very different because um, the iron ore is a global price. BHP doesn't control that price, so they don't have the ability to raise their price. If they charged more for iron ore over the global price, their volume could go to zero. So there is a detrimental impact on unit sales volume for that company if they raise prices beyond the market price. If the market price is rising, then that's a good thing. But, you know, you really need to think about or know um, what the outlook is for iron ore to be able to value that business and understand when it's cheap. In the case of the banks, the banks return a lot of money to their shareholders um, as dividends. Is that a sign that it's a good business or a bad business? Well, you don't judge. No, it's not a sign of a good or bad business. Um, So the payout ratio itself doesn't tell you whether or not it's good or bad. 
And the payout ratio is? The payout ratio is the proportion of the profits that are paid out as a dividend. So you take the earnings per share and the dividend per share and you divide uh, one by the other and uh, the dividend per share by the earnings per share uh, and then you get a percentage. uh, And that number represents the payout ratio, the proportion of the earnings that are paid out. The banks have a high payout ratio. They also generate reasonably attractive returns on equity, but those returns on equity have been coming down. And that's because credit growth has slowed down a lot after the boom in property in Australia and the boom in mortgages being written. Uh, and, and so as a consequence of that lower rate of return on equity, the banks have realised, well, no, you know, they've got a lot less people borrowing money, so they don't need as much equity. So a sensible thing to do is to pay out more of the earnings. So in that case, the, the high payout ratio actually reflects sound management and, and, a man, and a board that understands capital allocation very well. Um, presumably, when the economy picks up again, if it does, and when mortgage uh, demand picks up again, credit growth starts to accelerate, they, will, they may drop their payout ratio, retain more equity, leverage that equity up and lend more money. So in the case of a bank, what would um, they be using that money? What would they be able to invest in? to um, mortgages. Um, just Mortgages. So they can leverage multiple times their equity on a mortgage. That's their mortgage risk weight. Uh, and so they can take a dollar. And in the past, they've been able to lend $100 on every dollar of equity. That's now lower, but there's still many multiples of the equity they can, they can lend. So that's what they do. I've heard it said US companies tend to re- retain and reinvest in um, developing the businesses more than Australian companies to yes. do. Is that the case? And it is true. Is, and there, is that part of the difference between the way Americans think and Australians no, think? No, it's, it's, it's driven, I think, by tax. Mm-hmm. So in Australia, we have franking credits attached to dividends. So the company, uh, on any dividend paid, uh, if ta- tax has been paid, it's been paid at a rate of roughly 30%. It's not true every year, but let's say an average of, actually, it's about 27 28%. Um, and so those franking credits have no value to the company, but they have value to investors who pay a lower rate of tax than the company tax rate. What that means is that um, demand shareholders in Australia demand dividends and demand companies pay out those franking credits because those franking credits have no value to the company and value to the shareholders. So that you know, tax always skews investment decisions. Uh, and capital allocation decisions. You see people, you know, borrowing money to lose money on a property because they get a tax deduction. You know, that's that's losing a dollar to make 50 cents. Mm-hmm. It makes no sense, but lots of people do it. So tax can often drive decisions about capital allocation, and that's what's happening in Australia. And it's the reason why payout ratios are much higher in Australia than they are in the United States. Okay, we're talking about investors now and retail investors. We've come onto that subject. Um, do you think people in general, retail investors in general, uh, display patience and maybe they should look at being a bit more patient in trying to get returns? I think older investors are more patient, but I think that's true in life, right? Older people tend to be more patient than younger people. So I think it's fair to say that the same thing applies in the stock market. You know, the, the, there's still a risk, of course, that because you're seeing prices move every day, that you could be influenced to do something. I, I Look, I believe that most days you should be doing nothing. Uh, it's only when a really obvious opportunity falls into your lap that you should be active. Okay, 
You've started investing in the share market. Now, how do you track trades, dividends, distributions, and franking credits and all those other goodies? Just throw away those clunky spreadsheets with ShareSight. I have my portfolio on ShareSight and everything is automatically recorded. ShareSight are pleased to extend a special offer to listeners of this podcast. Two months free on an annual premium plan. Go to ShareSight.com forward slash shares for beginners and sign up now for a seven-day free trial. That's ShareSight.com slash shares for beginners. On another podcast, I heard heard you talking about um, different kinds of um, uh, strategies, theses, value, growth, and momentum. Can you explain that to our listeners, please? Yeah, absolutely. So... Really, let me say at the outset, these are really just labels that fund managers and advisors use to differentiate themselves. Mm-hmm. Value and growth are really two sides of the same coin. You can't value something unless you know how it's going to grow. Yep. Um, so, uh, and, and valuing assets is actually pretty straightforward. Let's say there was an auction today for a $10 million bank account earning 20% forever. What would you pay for that? Well, if we auction that off today and you said to yourself, I'm happy with a 10% return on my money, so you pay $20 million for that bank account. So it's, a, it's got $10 million in it, but you're prepared to pay $20 million for that bank account because you're happy with a 10% return. So if you're happy with a 5% return, you could pay $40 million for that bank account. Um, and so the lower the return you're willing to accept as your required return, the higher the price you can pay. Um, what we tend to do is simply uh, simply have a very set band or range of returns that we want for the risk associated with being in the stock market, and we'll only buy things when we believe we can lock in that return. In the past, that was 15%. Now it's about 8 or 9%. We're certainly not going to chase things when they're offering a return of 1% or 2%, which in some cases we're seeing in the stock market today. So value is the flip side of growth. Ideally, you want to buy businesses that are going to be substantially larger in 5, 10 or 15 years from now. They will, and, and if they can generate high rates of return on equity and retain large amounts of capital, they will be a lot bigger uh, in the future. They're the most valuable things to own. They're the most desirable assets to own. And you want to buy them when people are throwing them out with everything else. Um, So that's value and growth and how we think about it. Momentum really doesn't care about any of those things. It's just buying the stocks that have gone up the most or you believe will go up the most. There are fund managers in Australia and around the world that have made a lot of money in recent years using pure in- momentum strategies. So all they're doing is buying the things that went up the most last month and last quarter and last year, believing that they'll go up the most next quarter, next month, next quarter and next year. Uh, and they've done very well doing that because the best performing stocks over the last 12 months have been the stocks that did the best the previous 12 months. So it works. But I think it's very dangerous because it doesn't really matter what the company does. It doesn't matter what its name is. It doesn't matter what the code is. It doesn't matter who's running it. You're just buying the things that go up the most. That's momentum. Are you an acolyte of um, Warren Buffett? Oh, absolutely. Yes, and Charlie Munger and Mm -hmm. Benjamin Graham and um, 
you know, a bunch of value investors that have been around the last 50, 60, 70 years. Yeah, it's, uh, I've just started reading um, uh, that biography, the famous biography of um, Warren Buffett. Snowball? No, no, the, um, American Capitalist. Oh, The Making of an American Capitalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah very good yeah. book. And, uh, Roger um, Lowenstein. Right? But um, one of the quotes that I just heard about Warren Buffett is that he wants to invest in a company that could be run by his idiot nephew, because one of these days, an idiot nephew will be running that company. Yes, mm. yeah, that's true. Um, we do believe that the business boat you get into is more important than who's rowing it. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, though, uh, in s- our small companies funds, yep. management is vital mm-hmm. uh, because really the companies have so many hurdles in front of them uh, in terms of growing the business, raising capital, often no competitive advantage, limited revenue, you know, all of those hurdles, you really need some smart Everything guys you need in to navigate yeah, all of that. Um, eventually, a company will go from sort of emerging to more established. And when it's more established, you want to make sure that the processes, procedures and brand and the, the competitive advantage is there because if the CEO is hit by a bus or resigns, you want to know that it can keep going uh, and be successful. But of course, you do have the option to invest in the stock market. You've got the flexibility to get out very quickly if you need to. Small cap. Can you just give us an idea of what size companies are involved in the small cap end of the market? Yeah, look, anything below a couple of billion dollars really is considered Mm -hmm. a small cap. And it can go all the way down to maybe two or three hundred million dollars. Anything below that is considered micro capitalisation. So very, very small. And in our small companies funds, we invest in the whole gamut. You know, we invest all the way from the very, very smallest companies in our small cap funds all the way to the biggest companies in Australia in our domestic funds. So even micro caps? Yes, even micro caps. Mm-hmm. So is it um, much different trying to value those kind of companies as opposed to some of the bigger end of the market? Yes, it is. because What's in involved s- in that? Well, you have to estimate growth. So you've got to think about the timing. It's There are some companies where the growth is potentially more certain uh, and where that's the case, that's where we'll invest. Um, If it's too hard to work out, we just won't invest. Having said that, there's often a lot of change in the industries that these companies are in. So thinking about what changes could threaten the growth of a company is very important when you're thinking about valuing them. It is a higher risk game. So in our small companies funds, we tend to have a lot more holdings uh, and they're much smaller positions in case we don't get it right. So you, you spread the bets basically Indeed. a bit more evenly. Indeed. I'm just going to go off script here for a moment because sure. what's coming to mind is um, I'm a member of the Australian Shareholders Association for the last no, year. Know them very well. And they're fantastic. And they, yeah. I go to those meetings. And yeah, some I present of those, them all yeah, yeah, I'm Australia. sure you do. I'm sure yeah. you do. But I, I saw a presentation late last year and they were talking about the difference between a 20th century company and a 21st century company. Mm-hmm. And that's... Well, it tends to be sort of asset heavy manufacturing based mm-hmm. and now it's very asset light very brand based or platform based yeah. yeah how does it affect um your decisions in um investing in some of these companies well it's actually really interesting um so so if a company is growing its audience for example um and reinvesting a lot into customer acquisition that is a good thing if you think at the end of that process it will be the only one standing the problem is that companies, because money's so cheap at the moment and, you know, it's freely given, uh, it's a liability in people's bank accounts. They don't want it in their bank accounts because it earns so little. They're happy to throw it at research and development and startup companies. Then there's a risk or there's a belief that 
you know, that they'll all succeed. The problem that we see is that when companies are reinvesting a lot of money in their growth, that assumption that they'll all be successful is probably wrong because when they get to the point that they've acquired lots of customers, there'll be other competitors competing for those same customers and they'll continue to have to spend a lot of money to retain those customers. So the belief that, hey, we'll spend, like uh, Uber, for example, we'll spend billions and billions of dollars or lose billions and billions of dollars today by becoming the biggest taxi company in the world and then we can charge whatever we want because everyone else has gone broke. Well, guess what? There's people throwing money at other startups that are competing directly with Uber so it can't raise prices. Uh, And in fact, it's losing more money as it gets bigger because it has to pay more money to the drivers to incentivize them to stay. So yeah, that's that's the way we think about um, that particular issue. Talk to me about investing internationally. How does it change for you being here in Australia with your funds investing internationally? Well, we have a separate team um, called Montica Global Investments that manages our global funds. So Andy Mackin uh, and his team, uh, they're responsible for making those decisions. On the long side of the portfolio, so that means when we buy stocks, the philosophy is almost identical. Um, They're looking for competitive advantages, high rates of return on incremental capital. Um, You know, the stuff we've talked about at the start of this podcast is exactly what we're looking for and exactly what they're looking for. So on that side, there's actually no difference. The, The only difference is they've got a much deeper pool of things to look at and invest in. You know, we don't have these sort of opportunities in Australia, for example. There's a company based in France listed on the French exchange uh, called Essilor. Essilor, you and I are both wearing glasses. Essilor are the biggest manufacturer in the world of prescription lenses. Um, they invented transition lenses, multifocal lenses. You know, they, they spend more on research and development than any of the other companies combined uh, or all of the other companies combined. And they've got a huge runway for growth because um, when you hit about 45 there's a 70% chance that you'll need corrective eyewear. When you hit about 75, there's a 90% chance you'll need corrective eyewear. And guess what? The population of the world is ageing as it grows. The proportion of people over the age of 65 is getting larger and larger, and that's going to continue for decades. So this company, Essilor, really does have a very long runway for growth, and it's got 40% market share globally. Most of the listeners to this podcast are beginners and they're just taking their first baby steps in investing in the share market. Is there any singular piece of advice that you can give them? Be patient. You know, wait uh, until you you have a circle of competence developed so you know what you are good at uh, or what you know a lot about uh, and stick to investing in what you know a lot about. Um, If you don't know a lot about something, then you probably shouldn't be investing because it's a little bit like walking into a poker game where you haven't worked out who, and this is a Buffett quote, you haven't worked out who the patsy is. If you haven't worked out who the patsy is, it's you. You're the patsy, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so so it's really important to develop that circle of competence first before you go investing. But it's very difficult for people because they're just inundated with so much information. Yes. I mean, should they just start with an ETF, for example? Look, it's interesting you talk about this, and I don't want to use your podcast to promote my book, yeah. but I wrote my book for those people. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote it because I well, thought... Well, tell me about it and tell me what you said. Well, I wrote a book called Valuable and released it in 2010 
Um, and and it was I wrote it because I was for whatever reason I was a little bit paranoid about maybe dying prematurely, and I thought, well, if I do that, what will I? What will my kids turn to for how to invest? I want to leave them a manual for how to invest. And so I wrote valuable for my kids, really, so that then when they were old enough with very little knowledge, they could read that book and get an understanding of the basic concepts that they need to know in order to invest. Now, if after reading that book, they say, you know what, that's all too hard, then at least they know that and they don't go and make the mistake of investing themselves and they might leave it to a fund manager and, and wisely choose some fund managers to invest with instead who do know what they're doing. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So what's it like running a, an investment company? How... What are the meetings like? I've talked to, I've had a couple of fundies on, yeah. and they say that some of the meetings get quite passionate in um, uh, no, the way people don't. talk about um, no, their we've got investment a, theses. Okay, so as long as you've got a very clearly defined mandate uh, and a clearly defined investment process, there really isn't a lot of debate. You're either investing within the process or you're not investing within the process. And if you're not investing with, within the process, then there's no debate. You're not investing within the process. Mm-hmm. There's no discussion. Uh, if you're investing within the process, following your mandate, then really there's, there's usually consensus in the decisions that we make. The only di- disputes that arise is where we are asking, I, um, me as chief investment officer, I might ask one of my analysts um, a question about a company that they haven't really given a satisfactory answer to, which means they have to go on, away and do more work. Uh, and that's that's all there is to it. It's it's really quite um, quite boring at our office. <laughs> you know, it's a it's an introvert's um, paradise. Paradise. It? It's yeah. their their dream come true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got a lot of people uh, having a lot of conversations about companies, and a lot of people with headphones on, um, with noise cancelling headphones, just building models on their computers after they've gone and talked to companies and met with met with CEOs and met with boards and met with customers. So it's really important for an investor to know what's going on inside that company as well and the people running it and how it's run? Look, I think so. I think it's important. You know, the question that you want to know is how does this company make money? Mm-hmm. How does money flow through the business um, from, you know, from sale through to, uh, through to profit? You know, there, there are interesting businesses that, you know, that, that have interesting paths for the money. For example, uh, a car yard typically... Um, orders the cars from a manufacturer, from an OEM, and they sit on the lot. But the car dealership doesn't pay for the car until it sold the car. Uh, you know, so you look at a balance sheet, for example, of a car dealership, and you think, my gosh, it's got a lot of liabilities. Well, the liability is the amount of money it has to pay for the cars that it's bought or ordered. Mm. It doesn't have to pay them until they're sold. Uh, so, you know, from a cash flow perspective, it's actually not as unattractive as it would look if you looked at the balance sheet. So that's just one example. And I'm sure people are listening and they're thinking, oh, my gosh, how on earth am I going to learn all that? You know, that's a car manufacturer. And then there's supermarkets and they generate cash on their working capital. What did Roger just say? I don't even know what that means. Well, that's good. That means you've got a lot of work to do uh, before you go about investing in the stock market yourself. And a lot of it, too, is not listening to stories. 
because rather than looking at numbers, there's a lot of uh, CEOs out there who are selling a story, sure. aren't they? And you've got to be careful that you just don't get excited and caught up in what you think is an exciting yeah, story. Yeah, technology is yeah. probably the greatest example of that. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had, throughout history, we've had new technology. And what's happened with new te- what tends to happen with new technology is that people see the potential for that technology to change the world and they believe they're also going to change their financial fortune. Well, they do change their financial fortune, but often adversely because new technology tends to benefit the consumer much more than it benefits um, the investor. Uh, so you think of things like the television. Well, in the United States, there's been you know a couple of thousand TV manufacturers since the TV was invented in the 40s or 50s. I think it was the 50s it was released. Um, there's been you know lots and lots uh, of TV manufacturers in the US today. None exist. Um, you look at uh, you know airlines, for example, will collectively. Over, his, over time, they're making money now for the time being when interest rates are low, uh, but um, what we, and, and, and oil price is low, uh, but what we know is that in aggregate, since they existed, um, they've lost money, but it's been a huge benefit to consumers. You know, it's been great for the world, but investors have lost money. Uh, you know, I could go on car manufacturing, for example. There isn't a car manufacturer in the United States today that is profitable that wasn't bailed out at some point, either by the government or private equity. So the only one that hasn't been bailed out by government during the GFC was Ford, but it's been bailed out in the past by private equity. And so, you know, cars changed the course of human history. If you'd been there when Carl Benz first drove the first patented car, or first patented horseless carriage, you could have thought, and his wife, Berta, drove it to another city, another town, to do the grocery shopping, you would have thought this is going to change the course of history. Um, but no one made really any money because how would you have picked the winning car manufacturer given that in the US, for example, none exist today that haven't gone broke before? Okay, well, let's um, just finish up the interview because I just wanted to get your thoughts for a downturn sure. because a lot of people haven't really experienced a downturn and even 2008, 2009 is a dim memory. Yes. What should people be thinking about in these times when things seem to be so good? Well, while interest rates remain very, very low, we probably won't get a downturn in the economy. Having said that, though, the caveat is that the stock market could fall at any time. And if the stock market fell and people were nervous about investing and they were nervous about growth, then that could be enough to slow their spending behaviour and slow their investing behaviour. And that could bring on a recession, even with low rates. Alternatively, if inflation emerged and rates started going up, interest rates started going up, then that would probably end the boom too. I don't know when these things will happen, but what I do know is that history has demonstrated that they will. Uh, I can't tell you when, can't tell you how long it's going to be. But what I do know is that as sure as, you know, night follows day, we'll get a recession again somewhere in the world, uh, the United States or China or Australia, we'll get a stock market correction. And so that's why if you're investing today, you need to have a long time horizon. That's why I said earlier, the first piece of advice is patience. Um, You know, I said to a friend of mine who's looking at investing many millions of dollars, uh, you know, I said to him uh, yesterday, you know, I wouldn't be investing this money today unless you can see through a 50% correction. And of course, the first thing he does is shock, you know, takes it, looks at me with it with terrible shock on his face. I say, I'm not saying it's not going to happen tomorrow. I don't know if it is or it isn't. But what I do know is you need to have a long enough horizon 
that and invest only the amount of money you're prepared to see that decline and recovery. You know, and I wouldn't invest all at once. Uh, I'd invest in tranches over time because obviously if you uh, it's called dollar cost averaging. Um, if you have a fixed dollar amount of money uh, and you're investing it regularly, you buy more units when they're cheap and less when they're expensive. Now, if the market just continues to go in a northeasterly direction, you're better off investing all your money today. Uh, but I struggle to believe that that is likely to happen. There'll be bumps along the way and you want to take advantage of those. A 50% decline in a quality business is an opportunity. A 50% decline in a rubbish business, well, you're probably not going to get your money back. Uh, and so it's really important, you know, go refer to finish off the podcast by referring to what we talked about right at the start, which is quality. You know, it's important that everything that I'm saying is is when makes is appropriate for when you're buying quality businesses, not appropriate for when you're buying junk. Roger, it's been a great uh, pleasure speaking with you. Just um, just run us through some of the funds that you run as well, if uh, people are interested in getting in touch and finding out more about what you offer. Well, look, if they just go to montinvest.com, uh, M-O-N-T Invest. Dot com so Montgomery investment management montinvest.com um, we have a suite of funds that invest both domestically and globally um, we're, we're long-term investors unlike many other fund managers we have the ability to hold cash so we can hold high amounts of cash to protect investors uh, when markets pull back why is that what, what's the situation with cash why is that different well to it's other... been a mistake to actually hold cash in a bull market mm-hmm. but what we invest for a lot of ultra high net worth investors uh, and what we know about people who are very wealthy is they care more about the preservation of their capital than the pursuit of additional gains. So when I talk to ultra high net worth clients of ours and friends of mine, um, you know, they'll say, Rog, I don't really care about whether I get the last two or three percent in a bull run. I just don't want to lose 40 percent. And so we use that cash as a protection measure. So the returns that you see when you look at our returns online, the charts that you see, often that's with 20 or 25% cash in the bank. So we're managing to protect capital and generate really attractive risk-adjusted returns. So when the market falls, as it did uh, December a couple of years ago, uh, October to December, um, we, we fell a lot less. In fact, we're one of the top performing funds in Australia during that period. And that matters a lot to our clients. So that's why we have cash in our portfolios. A listener wrote to me asking about bonds, having some sort of uh, bond exposure. They were talking about an ETF that um, invested in Australian government bonds. Mm. Is that a worthwhile thing to have in any portfolio to protect yes. capital? Yes, if you believe that bond interest rates aren't going to go up because you can make capital losses on bonds um, if interest rates go up. If interest rates go up, there's an inverse relationship between price and, and yield. If the yield goes up, the price has to come down. So you can still make a capital loss. And what I'm most concerned about is that the bond market and the stock market currently have a very high correlation. They tend to move in sync. So you're not really getting as much diversification in bonds as you thought you were um, when there wasn't that correlation. They're moving together at the moment. So if the stock market goes down, the bond market tends to go down and vice versa. Uh, That means you're not getting diversification. So just think about that when you're thinking about bond investments. Roger Montgomery, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. A pleasure, Phil. Yeah, it's been great talking. Thank you. No problem at all. Easy. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. 
Thanks to Christopher Sumos for music production with that special Greekalicious flavour. Remember, music always flows, even when the money won't. Thank you.